as we've been going through the book of Revelation, again, the book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus himself, of who he is and what he will do. And uh, we need to keep that in mind as we go through. Uh, right now, we're in a series of churches that Jesus is writing letters to. Uh, and the conclusion of every letter, he has uh, similar words, if not identical words. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. And so even though each of these letters are written to churches uh, that were specific at the time, that had needs at the time, uh, there are applications that are intended for uh, every church at every time who would read and hear. And as uh, John, the author of the book of Revelation, says that there's a blessing for those who read it. Uh, so that's why I shared that uh, responsibility with you this morning, because I want you to be blessed too. Uh, there's a blessing on those who hear it. There's a blessing on those who understand and apply it. And so uh, we're very blessed already. And so we can go home. No, we're, we're going to get into it a little bit more. Um, the church that he writes to uh, in chapter 3, verse 1, uh, if your Bible has a heading, it might say, uh, as it does in mine, the dead church, uh, which is not, you know, a monogram that you would want on any church that you attend. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you go to the dead church. I'm like, oh, okay, great. Yeah, that's, that's the one I want to go to. I'm like, come here. Uh, that's not exactly the case of what's going on. Uh, that's not the reputation they have. Uh, but the church in Sardis, it had a rich history. Uh, the city of Sardis had a rich history. Uh, and there's a little tongue-in-cheek in that because in Sardis is where coins were made for the very first time as regular currency. And so they were a prosperous city. They, they had enough uh, things going on there economically to where coins were necessary for the first time in a regular kind of producing kind of a way. Uh, additionally, uh, Sardis, the city itself, had kind of uh, two locations, but the, the heart of the city was on a plateau. Uh, if you think about here in Valley Springs, we've got Castle Rock, where it's like this rock thing, and it's, it look, kind of looks like a castle. And if you're on the top of that, and it was your job to be uh, to def defend yourself, it'd be really easy because it's valley all the way around and there's this kind of castle thing that you're on. Well, the city of Sardis is very similar to that. Um, it visually seems impenetrable. You couldn't get to it. It was really easy to defend it. The, the rock wall itself around it uh, was a natural rock that was like shale where you were trying to climb it. It would just fall apart and there's just no way to get up it easily, let alone attack the city. And so it was a city that looked very secure on the outside. And in fact, it was so secure in its appearance that they wouldn't actually have guards watching at night to make sure that nobody would come in. And twice in its history, uh, that was taken advantage of. Uh, two different kings at two different times uh, in uh, 550 BC and about 200 BC, uh, the city was besieged and both times uh, it was conquered in the same way. The city had, again, this impenetrable facade on the outside where it looked like there was no way you could get in. And the first time it was conquered was because a soldier who was on the wall during the daytime dropped his helmet. And it rolled down into the valley, and he wanted to get his helmet. So he went down a secret path that was not visible from the <laughs> valley floor and just went and got his helmet and went back up. And somebody saw it. And they're like, oh, there is a way up there. And he took a handful of people in the middle of the night and went up and went in through the gate where that little path led and there was nobody there. And they conquered the city without a fight because there was nobody watching the entrance because they're like, we're secure, of course we're secure. We have this confidence that nobody can come in. And it didn't just happen once, 
It happened twice. Uh, they failed to learn the lesson of history of having a false confidence and not watching. And Jesus, in addressing this church, addresses both of those things uh, in his letter to this church. Notice uh, there in verses 1 through 3, uh, Jesus is going to spell out for them that reality is more important than reputation. Reality is more important than reputation. The city had a reputation of being a safe city that didn't need to be watched. Um, but the reality was it was not a safe city, and it did need to be watched. And Jesus is going to show them that the same is true for them as a church uh, spiritually. Notice how uh, he begins uh, by acknowledging what is good uh, in the church. And sometimes in some commentaries, they skip over this part. They're like, there's nothing good going on here. It's all 100% bad. And I want to point out what's good because it is good to have what they do have. And it's what Jesus acknowledges there in verse 1. He says, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive. Uh, so the church's reputation was good. The church is alive. That's a good reputation to have. Uh, if you listen to or uh, study some commentaries, they sometimes paint this church in the, in the light of, like, if you went to this church, it would, the building on the outside would be really big, but on the inside, it would be really empty. And I don't think that's the reality here at Sardis. I think if you went to this church, you would find that there are hundreds of people there. There are lots of leaders. There are committees, you know, doing committee things, and there's lots of activity going on. It had a reputation of being alive because they were doing a lot of things, and they were engaged in a lot of things, and there was this appearance of life. Their reputation on the outside with the community around them was good, that, hey, this is a living church. That would be the moniker on their wall. Hey, come to Sardis, where the church is alive. And everybody would be like, yeah, that's the church that's alive. They're the, they're the ones doing things. They, they're getting things done. And Jesus acknowledges that. That's not a bad reputation to have. It is a bad reputation to have if it's not true. <laughs> and unfortunately, uh, that is the case. Uh, when Jesus says here that you have a name, that you are alive, it's uh, in the sense of having a reputation, that this is what you're known for. It's like, oh, this person... Is the, if you need to go see this person if you have this problem because they have that reputation. And it's not uh, a name that they put on themselves. It was a name that everybody would put on them. It's how everybody else would ad identify them. And from everyone's perspective, from man's perspective, this church was a church that was alive. And that's not a bad thing. Unfortunately, the reality was the church was actually dead. The church's reality was bad, uh, even though the re reputation was good, because the church itself was dead. Notice what he says there at the end of verse 1, but you are dead. There's a church that we're going to cover in a couple weeks here uh, called the, the lukewarm church, the, the church in Laodicea, and they also had this kind of opposite perspective of themselves. They're like, oh, we're rich, we're we have need of nothing. We're not, you know, we have everything we have in Jesus, like you're poor, blind, naked, and the very opposite perspective. And it would seem that the church in Laodicea had this perspective of themselves that was wrong. Uh, and maybe it was obvious to everyone else, but it wasn't obvious to them. And I think this church is in the exact opposite state. And it doesn't state it clearly, so I'm not going to say that it is for sure, but it's worth considering that even though it was full of activity and full of life, 
that, and it had this reputation of being alive, that it knew on the inside that it was dead. Even though they were pretending on the outside that they had all of this life. And again, it's not stated explicitly, but Jesus in the church to the Laodiceans says, I know that you think this about yourself, but your thinking about it is wrong. Here, Jesus isn't addressing how they think about themselves. He's addressing their reputation and how it's not the same as reality. He's saying you have this reputation, but you're dead. And he's like, everybody else may be fooled, but I'm not fooled. Now, I'm not sure if in, in that being fooled is the church itself or not, or whether they were conscientious that, you know, I know that I'm not really <laughs> full of the life that I, I'm claiming to be alive with. When he describes them as dead, uh, this is typically a term that's reserved for unbelievers or believers before they became believers. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. We're dead before you became a believer and now alive. And, and Jesus is using this term that's typically reserved for unbelievers to describe this church of believers that you're dead. So where they were at was not good. Notice how Jesus addresses himself. Uh, typically in all of these letters, Jesus describes himself to the church and however he describes himself is important to understanding how he's going to address what's going on there. Whether it's good or bad, there's some part of who he is that they need to be reminded of. And how he describes himself addresses this situation in particular. Uh, notice how verse one begins in, in the description of Jesus of himself. He says, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He's the one who has the spirit. Where does life come from for a church is from the Lord. It's the Lord's spirit in the Lord's body that brings life to that body. And it's the Lord's body to begin with. The one who holds the seven stars is it's his church. It's his body, but it's his spirit in the body that makes the difference, that brings the life. And so he says, I'm the one who has the seven spirits. There's kind of uh, an allusion here to what is written in uh, Isaiah 11, verse 2. Uh, Isaiah 11, verse 2 uh, is a messianic prophecy about what Jesus would be like. In fact, Jesus quotes these words, but in Isaiah 11, verse 2, uh, he says, The Spirit of the Lord rests upon me, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Kind of a sevenfold, not seven different spirits, but seven. Uh, aspects or parts or uh, ways in which the Spirit is expressed. And Jesus used those words to describe what, the wor uh, what was going on inside of him and empowering the work that was going through him. It's the Spirit of the Lord that's upon me. And all of these aspects of the Spirit of the Lord, whether it be just the general Spirit of the Lord or the Spirit of wisdom or understanding or counsel or might or knowledge, all of these things are things that a church needs to be alive. And Jesus claimed that for himself. Jesus is identifying that he's the one writing as the one who has the seven spirits uh, of God. And what he's saying about this church in Sardis was that they were a body of believers without the spirit of God. They were 
the body of Christ without the spirit of Christ. Uh, and that's not a good place to be. Um, there's a, a, a writer by the name of A.W. Tozer, um, and he has this comment to make uh, with regard to our need for the Holy Spirit to be at work in the church and for us not to be comfortable not having the Spirit working and just doing things because we know how to do things. He says, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church, uh, from the church, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been uh, withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what, what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. And while I really like that quote, we're reading about a church in Sardis, <laughs> New Testament church, uh, that would fit that first description. If the spirit had been removed, 95% of everything they did would continue to go on and no one would know the difference. And it seems that, that this was the case, that the spirit of God had been removed and in their own strength and in their own power, according to their own wisdom and counsel, they were doing things that they thought would be pleasing to the Lord. Jesus describes our need for him, both corporately and individually, in John chapter 15, verse 5. Uh, John 15, 5, he says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. And it's that last phrase that I don't think that this church was very convinced of. And it's that phrase, without me, you can do nothing. How convinced are you of Jesus' words that without me you can do nothing? How convinced are we as a church that without him we can do nothing? Uh, I've been asked recently because of the transition that's happening, Pastor Art retiring and me stepping in his position, uh, the question normally goes something like this, Austin, are you ready? And it's kind of a trick question, <laughs> I feel. Uh, and I, I, my, my go-to answer thus far has been, insofar as the Lord... <laughs> does the work, I'm ready. <laughs> uh, if he doesn't do the work, it will be obvious <laughs> uh, that I can't do what God has called me to do apart from him, but I can do what God has called me to do with him. And uh, I'm very, I, I'm more convinced of that now than I've ever been before, that apart from him, I can do nothing. And, uh, but with him, all things are possible. Um, I, I think, I, I, I know Pastor Art really well, and I've seen all that God has done, and I'm like, Art couldn't have done any of this. <laughs> Pastor Art, apart from the Lord, couldn't have done any of this. But look at the work that the Lord has done through Pastor Art. He's done a significant work, a meaningful work in my own life alone, let alone everyone else's who is here this morning. They were a church with a good reputation, but the reality was bad. And we're told what they needed to do there at the end of, uh, in verse 2 and 3. Uh, what they needed to do, the church needed to repent of this hypocrisy. Uh, hypocrisy is when you pretend to be something that you're not. Uh, the, the ancient Greek world had actors and plays, and they were called hypocrites. And it was a good thing, because they were actors. And if they were a great hypocrite, you wanted to go see their show. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever witnessed good acting and then bad acting, you prefer the good acting. <laughs> it's more enjoyable, right? 
uh, unless it's your kid, then you're like, oh, it was wonderful. And everybody else is like, ugh. <laughs> right? And I kind of feel like that's what the Lord sees sometimes when we are pretending to be something that we're not. There was hypocrisy there, and what was needed was repentance. And, and, and beyond that, to be, well, notice what he says there in verse 2, the first two words, be watchful. He's telling a church in a city that had a reputation for not being watchful as a city <laughs> that they were confident in their reputation when the reality was that they should have had no confidence in that reputation. And that what they needed to do was to be watchful. And they weren't being, he's telling them to do it because they're not doing it. And it's not to be watchful of the enemy, but to be watchful of the Lord. Uh, their eyes were on their you know, YouTube streaming numbers and their Facebook likes for the church and their attendance and their giving and uh, all of the ways in which people can show approval of saying, yes, this church is alive. Their eyes were not being watchful of the Lord. They weren't looking to the Lord and saying, Lord, what do you, what do you think of our current state? In fact, they were, they were so unwatchful uh, that he would say uh, in verse 3 that if they will not watch, they will, he will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I come upon you. Uh, Jesus tells a, a few parables about being watchful. There are uh, ten virgins, a parable there. We can explore perhaps on Wednesday night. Um, but uh, also of a, of a man who, if he knew what time his house was going to be broken into, he would have stayed awake. He would have been watchful. He had been looking out for and been aware of. And what Jesus is saying here is that I have a standard and I have a perspective that you need to be aware of, that you need to be more aware of than anything else. And in fact, if you're unaware of, you're going to be caught by me by surprise. And it's going to take you by surprise. In fact, there's a, uh, a warning in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 that Jesus gives in verse 21 through 23. Matthew 7, 21 through verse 23, Jesus warns that uh, in the day that he comes, uh, there's going to be those who say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done this, that, and the other in your name. Man, we had a reputation that we were alive. Doesn't that impress you, Lord? And he's going to say, not that they didn't do any of those things, he's just going to say, I never knew you. That's going to take them by surprise. There was no relationship with the Lord, and that's where everything begins. Good works are good after there's life with the Lord. Before then, our good works are as filthy rags. Our righteousness apart from the Lord is not pretty. So he says, be watchful. It means to be awake to what's going on. He says that this church is 95% dead in that uh, there in verse 2, strengthen the things which remain and are ready to die. Uh, there is still some life there. Uh, he hasn't written off the church entirely, and he's not saying the entire church is dead. In fact, that's going to be our next point here in a minute. But he says there are, there are things that are, are, are alive and they're about to die, but they're not even on your radar. 
there are other things on your radar that are more important to you that are completely unimportant to the Lord. Strengthen the things which remain. Uh, the Lord uh, encourages us as believers to strengthen those who are weak in the faith. And uh, we're told in Isaiah 42, verse 3, that uh, the Lord isn't interested in snuffing out uh, or breaking a bruised reed or a smoking flax. Uh, smoking flax is something, it's like the least amount of something that could be a fire that would be super easy to put out. Like, it's like after you blow out your candle and the, the wick has still got that little, you know, hot spot on it, he's like, the Lord's not going to snuff that out. What he wants to do is he wants to fan that into flames. He's not, he, he's writing to this church. He hasn't written this church off. He's writing to this church, not because they are dead and he's unconcerned about it, but because there's a possibility of life still. And he's going to acknowledge that the reality that is that there's still life that's there. Um, but before he does, he wants them to do one thing in verse 3. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Notice that he says, remember how and not remember what. They had the what down, but they forgot the how. And uh, that distinction is important. Um, there was a church that Paul wrote to in Galatia uh, that, that forgot how. And what I mean by that is in, in Galatians chapter 3, uh, he, he spells it out in two questions. He says, are you so foolish? That's the first question. <laughs> Second question, have you begun, uh, having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? And what they were trying to do was they were trying to do the work of God apart from the power that God supplied them. They were trying to earn God's favor apart from God's grace. They were trying to do all of the things that they knew they were supposed to do, but they were trying to do it in their own strength. And Paul, writing to them, said, are you so foolish? I'm not sure if you have any really close friends in your life that like really know what's going on in your life, and they, they love you, and they care about you, and you're very confident in that relationship, and then they come to you, and they're like, why are you an idiot? Like That hits, that hits different than like you know, you're driving past somebody, and they, they yell, yell that at you. Paul was writing to the Galatians. He knew them. He loved them. And he's like, why are you so foolish? He's not saying that because he's angry at them or that he hates them. It's because he loves them. And he wants to correct what's going on. But what's going on is significant. This is an entire church that had begun in the spirit and now is trying to be made perfect in the flesh. It might make you wonder, could any Christian survive in such an environment? Is it possible to stay alive among the dead? Well, that's our next point. It's possible to stay alive among the dead. Notice verse 4. Uh, we're going to run through these next two points. I've got them all on one page, so hopefully we'll, we'll go through this next two points quicker. It's possible to be alive among the dead. Notice what it says there in verse 4. You have a few names, even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me for they are worthy. Up until this point, other churches had a few bad amongst the many good. Uh, in Pergamos and in Thyatira, there were a few bad among the good, but in Sardis, there were only a few good among the bad. 
those who were good in Sardis, notice how they're described there. Uh, a few names that have not defiled their garments. Uh, my best guess at the understanding of what that means is they're, they're not trying to clothe themselves in their own righteousness. They're not trying to put on something other than what God has given to them. Notice what he says, what they will do. Not only what they have done, they have not defiled their garments, but what they will do, they shall walk with Jesus. He says, they shall walk with me. And that's, that's what the Christian life is. It's a walk with Jesus. If you've ever been on a walk with somebody, in order to go for a walk with somebody, you've got to have three unspoken and or spoken agreements. You've got to agree on the direction, you've got to agree on the destination, and you've got to agree on the pace. Otherwise, you're not walking with them anymore. At some point, you will depart from them. And Jesus wants to go on a walk with us, but he's determined the direction. Uh, he's determined the destination. He's determined the pace at which he wants to go. And those who are alive walk with him. They are in step with him. Amos 4.4 4 says, can 4.4? 4, 4, 33. Somewhere in Amos. Ask me after service. We'll look at it together. Uh, he says, can two walk together unless they be agreed? There were a few who were alive because they agreed to walk with Jesus. Sometimes, this is my pastoral aside, uh, sometimes I get asked the question as a pastor, are there believers in, you fill in the name, church? Are there believers in the Catholic church? Are there believers in, you know, all of these different kinds of forms of Christianity. Uh, and while Christian labels can be helpful, they're not always helpful. Uh, labels are helpful insofar as they accurately describe what's on the inside. Uh, and as we see with the church at Sardis, not accurate label. <laughs> we're alive, we're dead. <laughs> insofar as the labels are accurate, they're helpful. Um, and so sometimes I'll get asked, uh, my wife even has a friend uh, who is a Catholic, um, but she's a terrible Catholic, but a good Christian. She reads her Bible all the time. She studies it, and she prays apart from a priest. <laughs> like, that's not good Catholic behavior. It's great Christian behavior. So is she a believer? I, I believe that she is. She's a good Christian, a bad practicing Catholic. And, and how I normally will dis distinguish that is if they believe the stated beliefs of this church, then they're not a believer. But I have no idea if that label, label is accurate because people will often mislabel themselves. Uh, in evangelism, sometimes uh, 25 years ago, if somebody said they were a Christian, I would have questioned that because it was, if you said you were a Christian, you wouldn't be asked follow-up questions. So it was the easy answer. And so I'd press into that. What, did that, what does that mean? Do you go to church? Do you read the Bible? Who, who, like, I'd press harder into that. It's flipped. That's not how it is in America anymore. If somebody says they're an atheist now, I, I don't believe it. It's the easy label you can give that nobody was going to ask follow-up questions. And so... Sometimes people will do the false label that requires no more questions. And again, the labels are helpful insofar as they're accurate, but I always question the accuracy of the labels, and I ask, where are they at re really? Where are they at with the Lord in reality? And if you were to ask me the question, are there believers in Sardis? I mean, Jesus says the church is dead. Yeah. Jesus also says there are people who are alive there. It's possible to stay alive amongst the dead. 
Final point, verses 5 and 6. Everyone in heaven will be robed in Christ's righteousness. Everyone in heaven will be robed in Christ's righteousness. Notice what he says there in verse 5 and 6. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear what the Spirit says, uh, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, notice how these overcomers are described. Again, uh, this term overcomer, we covered it a couple weeks ago. I covered it with you. Uh, are those who have victory. And this church thought they were already victorious, but there was still a victory for them to have that they weren't partaking in because they thought they already had it. And that was the victory that Christ had gained for them. They were living on the outside of. There was a few who are already in these garments, but he's inviting the entire church to wear these garments, that they would be clothed in white. Um, and then he gets into kind of a single statement uh, where he says it forwards and backwards, uh, and he's going to speak about the security of our salvation. We have a secure salvation, uh, and, he, and he states it in two ways. He says, uh, in the negative, I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and the angels in heaven. So what he will not do and what he will do, but it's based on this being robed in righteousness. The first thing is not blotting out the name uh, from the book of the living. Uh, it's kind of an ambiguous book. There's a, a handful of references uh, throughout Scripture. Perhaps we'll look at that on Wednesday night. That'll be up to our pastor to, to dive into that if he wants. Um, but the idea of having your name blotted out of the book of life might be concerning. If your name's written in the book of life, can I lose my salvation? Um, and some teach that from a passage like this. Uh, there, there may be some historical um, references here because uh, typically major cities kept a book of everybody who was alive in their city for taxation purposes. And then when you died, your name was scraped out so they wouldn't try to tax you. And so if, if Jesus is saying they're dead, is he going to scrape their name out is, is what they may have been asking. And he's like, I'm not saying that that's going to happen. And in, in contrast to those who would teach this from this passage, I think uh, the purpose why this is being written and it's parallel to the confession of Jesus of their name before the Father is significant. I think it's trying to say the same thing twice, both forward and backwards, saying your name is not going to be taken out of the book, and I will confess your name before my Father. It's one thing for us to confess Jesus before one another or before him. It's an, another thing entirely for him to confess our name before the Father. That's what gets us in heaven. <laughs> it's him saying, like, yeah, he's mine. He's allowed in. He's allowed in because he's clothed in white. Not in his own righteousness, but in my righteousness. It's his righteousness that secures our salvation. And it's that reality and not the reputation that we have amongst our community or even one another that gets us into heaven.
He concludes his letter, as he does all of the letters, saying, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It was a needed message then, for sure. It is a needed message now. And the question we can ask is, have we heard the message? I've outlined a handful of points for us to consider as believers that I want to run through with us uh, before we, we close. If you're a new believer, some truths uh, to consider, to think on, to know God sees, uh, how God sees you is more important than how anybody else sees you. And God sees you. He knows the thoughts and the intents of your heart. Every time God's judgment comes, it's, it's normally paired with something of he knew their thoughts continually were evil or he knew the contents of their heart God, what's going on inside of us is not a mystery to God. It's sometimes a mystery to us. Sometimes I'm like, Lord, what's going on with me right now? I have no idea. The Lord knows. But how God sees you is more important than how anyone else sees you. The Spirit of God in you and not a full calendar of Christian activities is what makes you spiritually alive. The Spirit of God in you and not a full calendar of Christian activities is what makes you spiritually alive. God makes what is dead alive, and only God does that. Also, uh, what this church is being called to uh, is what every believer who is a healthy and mature believer engages in, and that is a healthy believer has a rhythm of repentance or A rhythm of repentance is the norm in a healthy Christian life and in a healthy Christian church. It's just how how we got in is how we stay there. We got in through repentance. We stay here by repentance. Don't don't have this terrible feeling, oh, I need to repent of something. I must not be a believer. It's like, no, you are a believer and you just repent. That's part of being a child of God. He corrects those whom he loves. He corrects. It's evidence that we're his kids that he corrects us, not evidence against it. If you're a new believer, you can be secure in your salvation because he has clothed you in his righteousness. That's not based on your works or your performance. It never was and never will be. Your salvation is secure because it is based on his righteousness alone. If you're a mature believer, Uh, The words that Paul wrote to Galatians may be for you this morning. Having begun in the Spirit, are you seeking to be made perfect in the flesh? Are you trying to make your marriage work apart from the power that God is providing you? Are you trying to raise your children right without the Spirit of God? Mature believers have a higher danger of engaging what I'll describe as shiny, happy hypocrisy than anybody else. Pretending like everything's right on the outside to maintain the reputation that you're all good and you know the reality on the inside is you're dead. God sees that. We can't see it, but the Lord has spoken to you about it this morning. Another way I guess we can address it is uh, by asking the question, when was the last time you repented? Again, the normal Christian healthy life has regular rhythms of repentance. 
You know why we won't repent as mature believers? We won't repent when we're more concerned about what we appear to be than what we actually are. Could you imagine in Sardis holding a public repentance service? Like, oh, the church that was alive, they're saying they're not, they weren't alive? Interesting. <laughs> that would, that'd be hard. It requires humility. Humility being an honest evaluation of yourself followed by an honest presentation of yourself. And I know that you know this, but look, you need to be reminded of this. There is hope for repentant hypocrites. If somebody asked you, you would tell them that. But sometimes when we're in the middle of it, we can doubt that it's true for us. There can be a deadness on the inside that's depressing, that causes depression. But remember the truth. The truth is that he has clothed us in his righteousness. The security of our salvation is not in our performance, but his righteousness. And that Christ brings dead things to life. If you read through Ezekiel, there's a point where there's a bunch of dead bones, and God asks the prophet, can these bones live? The prophet's like, I don't know. (laughs) Only you know, (laughs) right? What he was confident of was, Lord, unless you do it, they cannot. (laughs) They're dead. (laughs) They're dry. They're not even like moist bones. (laughs) Dry bones. (laughs) They're dead, dead. And, And the Lord brings it back to life. It wasn't to a brand new believer, Paul, that God spoke these words. It was to the mature believer, Paul, that God said, my grace is sufficient for you and my strength is made perfect in weakness. If you're here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a believer, there's a lot going on in our world focusing on how we identify and how others identify us. But the most important identification is how God identifies you. You can convince yourself and everyone else in this room of whatever you want, but it's how the Lord sees you that matters. And I know that the Lord has been speaking to you that on the inside you're dead. And that can be depressing. (laughs) I would want to identify as alive myself, but... When the Lord identifies you as alive from the dead, that, that's the difference. The first man who was made was breathed into the breath of life from the Lord himself. And the Lord is still in the business of bringing dead people to life. God gives life to those who are dead and calls the dead to life. If you, according to scripture, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you can be alive. That confession will lead to the confession that we read about here, that the Lord will confess you before his Father. You will be allowed in, not because of anything you've done, but because of the work that God has done. I'm going to call the worship team forward to close us in a song, and as they do, I want to lead us in a word of prayer. Uh, That's going to include repentance, and uh, if you and your own heart know that today is that day of repentance for you. Let's, let's give to the Lord our sins so he can give to us and clothe us in his righteousness. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this morning, Lord, for this word. 
Lord, a word in due season for each one of us. Lord, that our reality matters more to you than our reputation. Lord, you want us to have a good reputation if it indeed matches the reality. Lord, we rejoice that you didn't just throw this church aside, that you didn't quench a smoking flax, but Lord, that you're trying to fan it into flames. Lord, that the life that could be, would be, and that that would happen through repentance. Lord, I pray for each one here, Lord, if there's any whom you've spoken to, you've laid your finger upon an area of life that's dead, that needs your touch. Lord, I pray for a, a filling of your spirit this morning for each one of us. Lord, to, to do and to be all that you desire us to do and be. Lord, that if we need to confess to one another, Lord, if we just need to confess it to you, Lord, that uh, during this song we would do so. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.